Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. I'm continually amazed by the capacity of individuals to withstand all sorts of physical, emotional, and financial strain for the sole purpose of keeping their loved ones safe and secure. Today, we're going to hear the caregiving story of Andrea McMillan, who was born in Kingston, Jamaica, and came to the U.S. with her family in 1977. Since then, Andrea's been living in Palm Beach County, Florida, where she practices law in addition to raising her 11-year-old daughter. Besides advocating on behalf of her clients, Andrea's gone to bat on many occasions for members of her own family, including her parents and her brother, who was seriously injured in a car accident. Andrea McMillan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jana. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So how old were you when your family came to the U.S.? And what sort of cultural shock did you experience? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was 10 years old when I moved from Kingston, Jamaica with my mom, who was then 43, my dad, who was about 55, and my two brothers, Christopher, who was 12 at the time, and my younger brother, Stephen, who was six years old at the time. And My parents both worked for the Jamaican government. My mother was a statistician. My father was an accountant. And they had a visa that required them to travel once a year, actually, to the United States. And so as civil servants, they spend sort of long vacations, probably considered long by American standards, visiting the U.S. And in 1977, Jamaica had a prime minister, Michael Manley, who tended to lean. He was a little close to Fidel Castro, and things were just not going so well socioeconomically in Jamaica in general, mm. not, not particularly with my family, but my mother sort of felt that it was time to move. And quite frankly, I think the driving force was to give her children better opportunities. And so, like so many other immigrant families, my family packed up and moved to the States. We moved to Palm Beach County, which at the time didn't have a lot of Jamaican people. At this time, there are many Jamaicans living in Palm Beach County, but at that time, not so many And I was a stranger in a strange land, Mm -hmm. and I remembered feeling very much like an outsider. The schooling system in Jamaica, Jamaica was a British colony until 1962, and um, the foundation, the education that I'd received up until that time was, was rather strict. And then I moved here, and I was enrolled in a public school, and I was very shocked at the difference. But... I guess the whole point was when we moved to Palm Beach County, my parents only knew one person here, and we were very, very close as a family. And my brothers and I, we went to college, but there was never any question in our minds as to whether or not we would come back home to be with our parents. And we did. We didn't 
you know, when we finished college and I finished law school, we didn't move in with our parents, move back home, but we, we certainly all lived very close by and, hmm. you know, really cared for each other. My caregiving experience started suddenly one day. Um, it's, it's been a while. It's been many years, yeah. but I still get emotional about it. It was January 14th, 2003, and it was my younger brother's birthday. And it was early in the morning. I remember going to the gym, and I remember um, before going to work, at the time, I had just opened up my own law practice about a year prior to that. Mm -hmm. And I remember picking up some groceries and dropping some off for my parents. So I went to their home and delivered their groceries to them. And I was driving to my office, which was not more than two miles or so from my parents' home. And I saw a long, long line of cars on the road. It was bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic on the way to my office. And I was in that traffic. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, there's a, you know, it must be a really bad accident down there that the road is so blocked and we're going at a snail's pace. And when I, um, as it was my turn to, you know, come upon the wreck, mm -hmm. I, my heart sank because I saw that it was my own brother's vehicle and it had been smashed to smithereens. Mm. And it was one of those moments, um, you know, it was, I knew it was my brother. And he was not at the scene at the time. It was just his vehicle and um, personnel around the vehicle. But life changed in that, in that moment for him, certainly, and for my entire family. My brother had been stopped in traffic and was hit at high speed by a man in a truck who was inattentive, an inattentive driver. And my brother's vehicle went spinning in the road where it was hit a second time by a big box truck mm. that crushed his spinal cord and gave him a brain injury. He was 38 years old at the time, and he, um, yeah, he was an engineer. I'll never forget, I got, you know, as I was going by shortly after, I got a call from my father, and as soon as I said hello, he said bad news, and I said, I already know. So yeah. my brother was a trauma case for quite a while. He was hospitalized. He was in seven different hospitals from January until August of 2003, about seven or eight months. And he really required a lot of, oh, so many different things in so many different ways just to stay alive. He was on a ventilator for many months, and the idea was to wean him off the ventilator Fortunately, looking back, I guess I've always known I was meant to do this kind of thing because I had a background as a medical malpractice lawyer. So I was familiar with the legal part of it. I happened to be a personal injury lawyer. And to the extent that he needed some things done, I was able to get those things going for him. But also, I certainly had to advocate for him as he fought for his life. I had to go to bat for him with doctors who wouldn't listen and all of the neglect and, you know, those kinds of things that can happen in a hospital or even a rehab setting. Because if it's not your family member, your loved one, it might not be very important. Now, having said that, I will say that we, I encountered many loving, caring people along the way. But I often found it necessary to uh, be very firm, very assertive, and um, really advocate for him. And at this point, were your parents in good health? 
My parents were in okay health. They, uh-huh. no, they neither one of them had any kind of serious illness at that time. I can tell you that the entire time that he was hospitalized, including his stint in rehab in Miami at Jackson Memorial Hospital, my mother and I, and my dad too, but mostly my mom and I, went to see him every day in every facility. Hmm. And at that time, I detected no sort of impairment, cognitive or otherwise, with my mother. Mm -hmm. She was certainly heartbroken about what had happened to her firstborn child, but there was nothing discernible in terms of any kind of impairment. However, there came a point later that year, my brother was discharged from rehab, and um, at the time I was living with my husband and our daughter in my home, and I had my home, I, I, I had just, my brother was living independently prior to his his accident and could no longer live on his own. So I modified my home and brought him in there. For example, I took out the master bath and had a roll-in bathroom, the sunken shower, all of those things that needed to be done. I had a... Did you consult um, with somebody on what to do? I mean, how did you go about finding solutions uh, to these problems? This is a a good question. (laughs) I do remember working with the brain and spinal cord injury program Mm -hmm. that the state of Florida has, Mm -hmm. and they helped to pay for all or most of the remodeling of the bathroom for him, yes, which was something certainly I appreciated. And also my driveway, I had some steps leading up to the front door of my home, and that needed to be made into a smooth concrete surface so his wheelchair could, could go up and down. Right. You know, it's a whole new world. I I do remember thinking, oh, my God, we're part of a whole new world now. We're a statistic. But there are resources out there. There are companies that specialize in modifying homes and things Mm -hmm. for seniors and disabled people. And he started being transported by the public transport system here in our county. It's called the Palm Tran, Palm Mm -hmm. Tran Connection. Mm -hmm. He would be transported that way and so forth. So he was in Miami for rehab, but you live in West Palm Beach now? Yes. Okay, so you and and your mom were going down to Miami for seven months? Wow, that's a long way. Oh, yeah, we we took the train some days. Wow, for for our listeners, we should explain that. It's about 65 miles from West Palm Beach to Miami, so that's a a trek every day. Yes. And I, and I remember also, some of this is coming back to me now, there were some horrible things that happened. I remember at some point in his hospitalization, his health insurance company terminated coverage for him. And I, I don't recall the specifics why, but that's where my, my lawyer skills had to kick in. And so in the midst of all of this, monitoring his care, you know, being very vigilant, also helping my parents, watching them and helping them with their broken hearts because their hearts truly were broken um, about what had occurred. In the midst of all of that, I had to go to war against his insurance company. And thankfully, after a few letters and conversations, his coverage was reinstated. But these are the kinds of things that can happen because nobody wants to have a spinal cord patient on their tab. You know, the costs were just astounding. I mean, mm. his medical bills probably approached $2 million. Oh, was, my gosh. Uh, yeah, it was it was quite something. It's, so, it's, it's tough because so, you're juggling your parents and yeah. your brother. And then yeah, where yeah, was your other brother child. in this yeah. scenario? My other brother, he was here too. But he, 
You know, as is true in many families, he was a bit younger than we were, not a whole lot, but he was six years younger than my older brother, four years younger than me. Mm-hmm. And he's always been the one that's sort of been a little removed from the family. Mm-hmm. I think maybe some or maybe most families have one or two siblings that are that way. But And it wasn't that he didn't care, but it was easier for him to sort of, or maybe it was his way of reacting, just dealing and coping with the situation. But right. He, more than anybody, he was plugged into his normal routine mm-hmm. more so than the rest of us, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, he cared and he was supportive in his own way. So after you modified your home, your brother moved in with you? Yes, he uh-huh. did. And he required, well, because we lived there, he didn't require round-the-clock care, but certainly during the daytime. So that meant, you know, nurses' aid. I, initially, I think we used agencies. And I think that's what we did for a while. But one of the benefits of being Jamaican, Jenna, is that there are many Jamaican caregivers. <laughs> that's uh, true. <laughs> people from my country, many people, they, they're, they're in the caregiving field. Yeah. And so that was actually a great benefit because I was able to, at some point, I started hiring on my own, finding them on my own. And it's not necessarily something I'd recommend for everybody, but I, you know, I, I guess I was pretty brave mm-hmm. <laughs> looking back. Well, you had that I, cultural connection too, which yeah, I did. I for did. you probably gave you an added level of comfort and trust. Yes, yes. And I, I very much wanted, you said that cultural connection, that understanding, you know, mm-hmm. I, I wanted my brother to be comfortable. And, you know, later on, as my parents required care, that was huge to have people caring for my parents who had that cultural connection with them, who could prepare the kind of food that they liked. And, you know, I wanted them to feel as comfortable and as safe as possible. So how did that change your work life? And Oh, wow. (laughs) Let's talk about that because, of course, you know, paid leave is a huge issue that is getting a little bit more attention now in the presidential campaign, but it's a big issue. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm a person of faith. Let Mm -hmm. me say that. Mm -hmm. That's important for me to share um, on a personal level. And I have to tell you, my faith carried me through this. And if I did not have that, honestly, I'd probably be doing the Thorazine shuffle somewhere. I mean, the uh, the Thorazine shuffle. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I didn't have extended family here, Mm -hmm. I really had to rely on my faith a lot. So, well, I mean, just in um, terms of logistics with your work. Well, I, I feel like God sort of knew what was going to happen. And as I said, about a year prior to all of this happening, I had opened my own law firm. Uh huh. And that was a huge blessing for me because, quite frankly, I had no idea what was to come. And I I can assure you I could not have been in anybody's law firm and have the freedom to do all the things that I was called upon to do. And it it, it went on for a long time. I ended up caring for them for 10 years. Your parents. and Yeah, and And, my brother. And your brother. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when I say care, and, and this was just, I guess I should back up in the story a little bit. So my brother was injured in January of 03. In November of 03, I started noticing my mother being forgetful. And I had an idea. I suspected Alzheimer's. Not that it ran in my family. I just knew enough 
to have an index of suspicion for Alzheimer's and I took her to a neurologist, I remember, and she was always sort of a quiet person, but she was extra quiet during that appointment. And I re- I'll never forget when the neurologist, after I, I had explained all the things I had been observing in my mom, the neurologist turned to my mom and said, so what do you think of this? And uh, my mom said, I don't know what the fuss is about. I, I think I'm fine, you know. Mm-hmm. But in fact, the neurologist said, I do think it's Alzheimer's. And she was absolutely right. Because I guess immediately prior to that, it was my birthday. And my mom was going to fix me my favorite Jamaican dish. And I had bought all the supplies and everything. And I set them out on the counter. And then I looked at my mom. And I realized that she didn't know what to do. Hmm. She just was frozen. And so that is what to, it was like a punch in the gut. And it was then that I took her to the neurologist and she was diagnosed. So in November of 03, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And then a few months after that, my father was diagnosed with a different kind of dementia, Lewy body dementia. Hmm. So that was it. I had three to care for. Wow. Yeah. And I got pregnant in November of 2004. I gave birth to my daughter. Mm-hmm. And my brother, so at the time, there were caregivers coming into my home and looking after him and so forth. And he was going to outpatient rehab. And I don't remember exactly at what point in the journey. But up until a certain point, of course, my, my parents were functional mm-hmm. until my mom was diagnosed. Now, again, we all lived in the same vicinity, and Uh I would go to my parents' house practically every day. And, you know, I just remember, for example, my mom had stopped cooking, and I thought she was just tired. You Uh know, I said, oh, well, this woman's cooked all her life. She must be just tired. And then cleaning the house, I remember I had hired a cleaning service to come into the house, and I remember sitting at my desk one day and one of the cleaning girls called me and she said, your dad just chased us out of the house. He accused us of breaking the ceiling fan, you know? Oh, no. And yeah, and, and then I, I was like really mad. I thought, oh, my dad just chased him out. So I remember dropping everything and coming to my parents' house. And, you know, they, they were declining, Jana. Yeah. And looking back, my dad was, was fearful of losing control Okay, so life as he knew it was slipping away, and that's how he was responding to it, by trying very desperately to maintain control of his environment and his Mm -hmm. life. So I ended up hiring a Jamaican woman, and, you know, I look back and sort of chuckle because I didn't realize we were going to have a very long journey, this woman (laughs) and my family. Uh But she ended up caring for my parents for 10 years until the day my mother passed away. Yeah. And I sort of became very adept at hiring caregivers because, (laughs) you know, well, what were some of the criteria that you had? Because for those who haven't had to hire caregivers, this would be really helpful. Yeah. Well, again, I wouldn't necessarily recommend my way to everybody. And I say that only because I, because I, like I said, I, I'm Jamaican. I sort of had a, a certain confidence. Sure. About it. So I'll tell you how I did it. I would put an ad in the paper. And well, the very first one, the one I had for 10 years, I did not hire her from the paper. She was recommended by a neighbor. 
who told me that she thought my parents needed some help. And it, as it turns out, you know, there's a whole network of, like, say, Jamaicans. They all go to the same church. You know, they go to church together. They have friends. So there's a whole network of them. And if you can plug into the network, that's very helpful. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if one of them can't make the shift, can't show up for work, mm-hmm. oftentimes they have a sister or a friend or somebody who can fill the shift. A backup. Fill the sh- <laughs> a backup. And that, that can be very helpful. But I figured out early on that many caregivers will tell you at the beginning, let's say you need 24-7 coverage. They'll say, I can do it all. I can do it. Or I can do Monday through Friday, what have you, 9 to 9. But I learned early in the experience that that's not good for them and that's not good for your loved ones because it's just impossible. It's physically and emotionally draining and the caregivers need time to to, to do what they need to do and spend time with their family. So even if they say they're willing to do it, willing and able, you have to be careful with burning them out. So I would put an ad in the paper and then I would put my work number as the, you know, the number to call for the job. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't answer, <laughs> I wouldn't answer the phone immediately. I, I would have them leave a message. Mm-hmm. And just based on the message and how they sounded, I would select some to call back. Mm-hmm. And then I would take it from there. And it's only because, I, I don't know, I just had a sense that I was able to pick the best ones that way. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple duds in there. But <laughs> for the most part, I had, I had people who were with me for quite a few years. You know, like I said, one, she worked Monday through Friday for 10 years. She did that. Wow. And she did like a 12-hour shift and then you had someone else. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And then I figured out that for weekend coverage... I would hire two different women for every other weekend, right? So mm-hmm. so everybody got a weekend on, a weekend off. That way, and a lot of these caregivers, they love to go to church, and that's important to them. Mm-hmm. So everybody had a chance to go to church and have a weekend off, and mm-hmm. so they wouldn't experience burnout, you know? Mm-hmm. And then there came a point, and this was just a personal choice that I made. It's not for everybody, but I decided that I wanted to do hands-on care myself. Mm-hmm. So for many years, I would care for them, not every weekend, but like every other weekend. Mm -hmm. Or if one of the weekend caregivers needed a day off, I would come in, bathe, dress, feed. And that was really important for my parents. And sometimes my brother, I did it too, but not for long term. You know, they say once a man, twice a child. Yeah, I've heard that. My parents became babies again. My dad drank from a sippy cup. Uh-huh. Um, they were both in diapers. My parents ended up sleeping in the same room, each in a hospital bed. They each had a wheelchair. And then when my brother would come over, there would be three wheelchairs. <laughs> so, oh, so it was sort of like a little nursing home. Mm-hmm. I should tell you that after I had my baby... My brother decided that he wanted some more social stimulation, and he decided on his own that he wanted to go to a nursing home. Mm -hmm. And there happened to be one. It was aesthetically one of the better ones, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was very close to my home, so he went to live there for a while, for a few years. But Mm -hmm. it it wasn't all good. It was very rough. It was bumpy for him. And there came a point, I forget what year, maybe 2008 or so, I pulled him out, and he went to live with my other brother. And the agreement was that he could live there, but I would be responsible for his for managing his care, and that was fine. That was fine by me, mm-hmm. you know. So this was an arrangement that my other brother and I had. And um, so your brother, brother, who was injured, was 
he, you said he had a spinal cord injury that put him in a wheelchair, yes. and he also had a yes. brain impairment. Yes, he was cognitively impaired, but mm-hmm. he could still talk, he okay. could still think. Right, I'm just so, trying to establish the extent of his injuries. He was, he was paralyzed from his breast down, okay? okay? So he had use of his arms, and mm-hmm. he could feed himself. But, mm-hmm. you know, I have to tell you that on the scale of things, I was grateful that he wasn't, uh, you know, in a vegetative state, but he was still able to communicate and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And so my brother, the state furnished him with nurses' aides who came in and so forth, and I would go to my brother's house to manage his care. Mm-hmm. And at times, I would also care for him. Because um, your younger I mean, brother was willing to house him, but didn't really yes. want anything to do with his yes. care. Okay, yes. just to establish that. Yes, right. and, he, and, and, and quite frankly, he just not made for that. Yeah, he has other sure. strengths and everything. Yep. Yeah. And my brother didn't mind my taking care of him. Of course, we were siblings, so sometimes we were little fusses here and there. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would shop routinely for three months oh behind my, my parents. <laughs> you really <laughs> are my a brother. <laughs> well, how did you, what did you, you know, do for I, yourself during this time? Not a whole lot, I'll be honest. Not a whole lot. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't say that to sound like a martyr. And I don't say that because it's not for everybody, but right. it was just a choice I made. I felt like my family was in an acute crisis and they needed somebody to keep going for them. And I just had a sense through the whole thing that because my conviction to look after them was so strong that it would carry me through that in my face. And I have to tell you that it did, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. not without sadness and not without some scars Probably looking back at it, I probably should have maybe reached out for more help or so, but I got through it and I just feel, as corny as it may sound, that the love carried us through the entire experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it ended up, I, I, first of all, my brother, I knew because of his catastrophic injury, he had a decreased life expectancy because mm-hmm. he was using catheters. And when you're introducing a foreign body into your own body, mm-hmm. you're potentially introducing infection. And also, because he was paralyzed, he was prone to pressure sores, and he would be hospitalized mm-hmm. at least two, three times a year mm-hmm. with some sort of infection. When, mm-hmm. when you have a spinal cord injury, your internal thermometer is broken. So, mm-hmm. for example, he would go outside, and his body would really heat up, and mm-hmm. just all kinds of sequelae that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, sequelae? Yeah, what is, yeah, yeah. Is that it's, a legal term? In other words, the that thing, it's actually a medical term. Okay. It, it's things that follow from oh, the I final court injury. Oh, I see. Sure, Con- that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, consequence. So in November of 2012, I was at home, and I got a call from the nurse's aide, the one who had been with us for 10 years. Oh, and by the way, one of the things that I had the aides do, which was very helpful, was I had them, I had legal pads at my parents' house, and they all were required to write down the important things that happened on their shift so that whenever I came to the house, if they weren't there, or even if they were there, I wanted documentation about who ate, who didn't eat, mm-hmm. who complained of pain, who had a bowel movement, who didn't, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. Now, you're saying that so, to suggest that all three of those that you were caring for, your parents and your younger brother, were all under one roof at the same point. I'm trying to get the logistics okay. right here. <laughs> I, 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 know it, I know it's a little confused. Yeah. My parents okay. lived in their own home. My parents were in their home, and they, they never spent a day in a facility, thank God. Okay, and, okay, and they had 24-7 care in two 12-hour yeah. shifts and combination 
assortment of yeah. needs. Okay, yeah. got it. And then my brother, as I said, he lived in my home at first, mm-hmm. and then he was in a nursing home, mm-hmm. and then I pulled him out of the nursing home, and he went to live in our other brother's home. Was there an event and that precipitated that? There were all kinds of issues. Quite frankly, it wasn't a good placement. He was at that point in his early 40s, and he was in the nursing home. Now, he was a very soft, spiritual soul, and Mm -hmm. he loved cheering up the seniors and that kind of thing. But Mm -hmm. having said that, he still was misplaced, you know. I Mm -hmm. mean, he was this this young man in this nursing home, and uh, he could see things happening to other people that shouldn't have been happening, and it was just not a good placement. One of the things that happened was, you know, as I mentioned, he would be hospitalized sometimes, a few times a year, with these infections and things. And one day, he was discharged from the hospital and came back, and all of his things were packed up in the boxes. Wow! At the <laughs> yeah, nursing home. Yeah, yeah. It was like you know something about a bed hole and, and Medicare. Oh, right. And, just, and so it was just bad. And uh-huh. so yeah, I pulled him out. And, I see. Um, that was enough. That, yeah. So my brother never lived with my parents. It was just that he would come over often and visit. You know, okay. sometimes he would come over and spend the day at my parents' house. So mm-hmm. at that point, we would have the three of them. Mm-hmm. You know, together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And your brother is he still living? No. So I'll tell you that story. In November of 2012, I was at home and then I um, I got a call from the nurse's aide, the one who had been with us for 10 years. And all she said was, it was like one of these calls and it, she just said, come quick. And she hung up and my heart was in my throat because I didn't know. I knew, you know, she was calling from my parents' house. So I knew she was calling about one of the two of them, but I didn't know which one. And I was at home with my daughter. By that point, by the way, I was separated from my husband. Mm-hmm. But that's mm-hmm. a story into itself. So we, my daughter and I raced over to my parents' house. And when we got there, fire rescue was there. And my parents have sort of like a split-level home. And I put my daughter in one part of the house. And I went down. And my dad, the medics were working on my dad. They were doing chest compression. But I knew my dad was gone. I just, having cared for them all yeah. those years, mm-hmm. like you just sort of become organic. And and I knew my dad was gone. Yeah. And so How old was he? They were working. He was 89. But they, they still transported him to the hospital. And they came out and said, I'm sorry. You need to make a call. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, so my dad passed away in November 2012. So we we buried him. And then in mid-December, my brother, Christopher, my injured brother, he didn't feel so well. So he went to the hospital to have some testing done, and they admitted him to the hospital. So meanwhile, the aides are taking care of my mom at home. And by the way, the day my dad died, my daughter and I moved into my parents' house to help look after my mother. I just decided wow. that, that, yeah, we, we needed to do that. So my daughter and I moved in to help look after my mom. And your daughter and was how old at that point? She was eight years old. And at that eight. point you were separated from your husband? Yes. We, we just left the house and my mm-hmm. daughter and I moved in and he, he went elsewhere. He went somewhere okay. else to live. But getting back to my brother. So my brother was in the hospital and he had a general feeling of malaise. He didn't feel well. He was supposed to be discharged on like Christmas Eve mm-hmm. and decided because of the holidays that he would be discharged the day after Christmas. 
And so I was with him on Christmas Eve, and on Christmas Day, I brought dinner to him in the hospital, and he just, he didn't want to eat. He didn't have an appetite. He said he just didn't feel well, and I accepted that, and I remember at the time, my mother was being cared for at home by the caregiver, and I um, I remember telling him, you know, well... I wanted to visit my, our father's grave on Christmas Day, and the cemetery closed at 4 o'clock, and so I said, I've got to go. I want to go to the, you know, visit our father's grave, mm-hmm. and the cemetery's going to close, but I'll see you tomorrow, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And so I did that, and then I went home, and I, was, I gave the nurses aid some time off, and I was feeding my mother when I got a call from the hospital that I needed to come immediately. And what happened was my brother had gone brain dead. He went brain dead on Christmas night. Ugh. Yeah, he went brain dead, and he didn't pass away immediately. And, and, uh-huh. and I don't mean to just gloss over that, but that was the absolute worst, having just seen him. And even though he wasn't feeling well, it was nothing that appeared to be acute. And, you know, it was so shocking, and his last words were, call my sister. And that's when they called me, and I sat vigil. I was trying to figure out what had happened to him, Uh and he was in that hospital for a few weeks where they wanted to extubate him, which is basically pulling the plug, and I was not willing to do that until I was absolutely convinced there was nothing that could be done for him. Mm -hmm. And I hate to say it, but the hospital was calling me every day to come, come, come. And to be very frank with you, they wanted the bed. They wanted the bed for another patient, hmm. which in, in some ways I suppose is understandable. But for me, this was my brother and this was so sudden and it was just shocking. But having said that, I talked to his minister, the aide to whom he was most close, his closest friend, mm-hmm. and really tried to discern what the right thing to do was. Mm. And so finally... I had a dear friend in town who was a physician, and he told me, he said, if it were my brother, I would do it because he had gone and looked at my brother's chart and everything. And so that, that all helped me come to some sort of resolution about what to do. Mm-hmm. And the day came when we were all there, you know, his friend and the caregiver and me and, and, and the minister, and they extubated him but he didn't pass away right then and there, which I was really happy about. (laughs) You felt Um, vindicated, huh? (laughs) Yeah, I felt, yay, he's still not ready, you know, kind of thing. And I know people have mixed feelings about these kinds of things, but I had to do what, you know, was right for me and him, what I thought was right for him, first and foremost. But Mm -hmm. in any event, at that point, he went to a hospice facility. So he was still alive. Yeah, his his heart was still beating and everything, and he he went to a hospice facility. Mm-hmm. And at the time, my mother was on hospice care at home oh my too. Gosh. Oh my gosh! <laughs> wow. So you have a yeah. brother who is moved to hospice that yeah. the hospital has determined is already deceased, but there's a heartbeat, yeah. so he goes to hospice. Yeah. And then yeah. in the meantime, your mom is in hospice at your home. Wow. Yes, yes. So, you know, Jana, I, I read yeah. some of the things on your website and everything, and, you know, you talked about finding the humor, and you do have to, you know. 
to that point, I remember, fortunately, I have to tell you, the hospice facility was one where you could go and come 24 hours a day, you know, whenever you could make it, if you could make it, if you could only make it at 2 o'clock in the morning, then Mm. by golly, come on in, you know. Mm. And I wanted to be able to sleep at the facility. And this may sound a little bizarre, but my daughter and I, we spent a couple nights there. In his um, room? Yeah. Wow. yeah, right there in his room, yeah. Wow. Yeah. How did your daughter react to that? Well, she understood to the extent that an eight-year-old can understand, you know, what's going on. But, like, in the morning, I'd get her ready for school at at the facility. And to her, it was like a hotel. (laughs) (laughs) And so I remember she said, wow, this is great. Can we come back tonight, you know? And And your brother is just laying there unresponsive. Yeah, he -hmm. was breathing, he Mm -hmm. had a heartbeat, but that was it. He never regained consciousness. And he passed away in January, I think it was January 20th of 2013. And I was Mm. with him when he took his last breath. And then we had services for him. And then in March, so I, as I said, my daughter and I at that point were living at my parents' house with my mother. Mm -hmm. And the caregivers would come in and I would take care of her as well. And one morning I woke up and because I had seen my brother pass away, I knew that it was my mother's turn that day. I could just tell. And so at this point, I was like a frequent customer of a certain funeral home in town. And, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, it's just so <laughs> And my frequent punch card. You're a frequent flyer. <laughs> I mean, you kind of so, laugh. It's almost unbelievable. Laugh, right? You have to laugh. Oh. Yeah. So I, I called him up that morning. I called up my friend. He'd become my friend at that point. The man, this was a family-owned funeral home. Mm-hmm. Been around for 50 years, you mm-hmm. know, and they had been so kind with my mm-hmm. other losses. And so I said, today, I have another one coming to you. So they said, okay, when you're ready, you call and so forth. So I remember that morning I I called hospice and they sent a nurse over and they said, yes, you're correct. This is it. And I called my younger brother and he was on, he was on his way to Miami to do some work. And I said, you need to turn back around. You need to come. And so my mother that afternoon, I was with her when she took her last breath and that was it. That was it. But in a four-month period, I lost the three of them. So I had three funerals in the four-month period. Wow. At least your mother yep. was able to take her last breath in her home. Yes. I have to tell you, and again, it's not for everybody because there is so much that is required to keep a loved one at home. But to the extent that it's possible, I'm just really grateful that I was able to keep mine in spite of my brother's stay in that nursing home. We were able to take him out, and my parents never spent a day in Mm -hmm. a a facility. Yeah. Well, Andrea, you were there for your parents. You were there to care for your parents and your brother. What sort of hopes do you have for your daughter in terms of caring for you in your older age? Do you worry about getting older? (laughs) I do. I do. I've seen it up close and personal. I absolutely do, and I think that everybody needs to be concerned about it because it can be rough sailing, you know, Mm -hmm. and... People are living longer. There are more incidents of dementia, and I've seen what it does, and dementia runs in my family. Of course, I'd be foolish not to be concerned. In terms of my daughter, you know, she was so helpful and sweet. I remember, for example, after my father passed away, 
you know, I would have her keep an eye on grandma for me. And mm-hmm. she would say, grandma's coughing, mom, or she's not eating, this kind of thing. Yeah. And so sweet. And so she's certainly been exposed to it. But I have to tell you, having said that, honestly, you don't know what your children will do. Yeah. I mean, you hope for the best. And I'm being very candid when I say that. She seems to me to be a little worldly. Mm. She jokes and she says, I've got your home picked out for you, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, on the one hand, comforting because she's, you know, smart and thinking ahead. But on the other hand, like she wants you out of the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you don't know. I mean, I can't fault her if she wants to live her own life. I'm just glad that I had and have still a deep and abiding love for my parents. I mean, I was very, very blessed to have the parents that I did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I did, it may sound heroic, but honestly, it was the least I could do for them. After mm-hmm. everything they did for us, they, you know, cared for us and we came to this country together. And I'm just really pleased that God gave me the strength and the courage to do what I did. Do you talk about long-term care with your peers and your friends? You know, my father used to have a saying, he who feels it knows it. And sometimes when I would relate the experience about caregiving for my family, people would sort of nod politely and so forth if they hadn't been through it. And so... Perhaps, you know, it's not on the radar screen the way it should be because enough people perhaps have not been through it, but there needs to be a strong body of advocacy. There needs to be a movement, uh, a caregiving movement started because it is going to be a crisis, the likes of which this country hasn't seen. We need to be heard. I will candidly admit that while I was caregiving, I lost income. It translates into dollars and cents. Mm-hmm. And we need to have a national discussion about this. I, I'm pleased to say that people like you who are encouraging these discussions and making caregivers' voices heard are, you know, you're to be commended for that. Every now and then I'll see an article about caregiving. There's a caregiving conference I know that we have in our town and so forth. But there needs to be a galvanizing and telling the stories like you're doing, right? <laughs> so you're... Speaking caregivers' stories and telling the narrative. Maybe there's a lot of fear about this, perhaps justifiably so. It's, it's a scary topic to talk about because you're forced to confront what the later years you know, are going to look like and the cost, but it's going to happen. That's right. So there needs to be, it's coming needs down to the be pike. a discussion about it. <laughs> it sure is. Well, what sort of advice do you have for listeners who may be dealing with some of the same issues that you've encountered? Well... Take one day at a time. Take one day at a time. Seek help, even though I admit to maybe not probably availing myself and sort of, I can do it all, you know, don't worry about it. I've got, that's not necessarily the best way to do it, but to seek help. Take time for yourself. I mean, you have to heal, right? So you mm-hmm. have to heal. And this is what I really want to share with your listeners. And it, it's something I learned, and it, it, it's, it's a phrase, and it's, I, I share it with my friends who are undergoing this thing, and it's, Meet them where they are. You have to meet them where they are. I remember when my dad, there came a point early on where, you know, I'd say, come, let's go to the grocery store. And he would just look at me and say, I can't. I go, what do you mean you can't? You know, because I'm in my functioning mode. Mm -hmm. And of course you can. You can do it. Of course you can. And until I got to a point where I realized, no, he can't. You know, and that's when I came to, you just have to meet them where they are. They become very fearful. At Mm -hmm. some point, they do understand what's happening to them, and they're very afraid. And just like a child 
seeks comfort from a parent the same way they seek comfort from you and reassurance, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. One of the things I learned that you, you, you don't try to correct them. You know, right. if they're in the throes of dementia and they're saying something wrong, like my dad would ask about his friend who died years ago, you know, I would, I would just say, he's fine. He said to say hi and whatever. And that's because they don't need to be any further agitated. Right. And there's no upset, harm in that. You know? That's a good lie. <laughs> yeah. I remember my, my dad's sister would come from Jamaica every year and stay with my parents for like eight weeks. One time she came, and I wasn't here at the house, but the nurse's aide shared this with me. She, my dad said, oh, Claire won't talk to me. And, and my dad's sister goes, don't you know she's sick as well? And my dad, who was so strong, you know, he wept. And it broke my heart when I heard this, you know. So then I took my aunt aside. And I, in a very kind and gentle way, I said, you know, Aunt Merce, it doesn't serve any good purpose to tell him that his wife is sick. It just doesn't, you know, and then then my aunt starts to cry. I didn't know, and like, oh, (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, yeah, well, there's so much new information that has to be processed and new emotions that have to be dealt with. Yeah. I have the utmost respect for caregivers, and I have to tell you, I have a number of friends now who who are going through the experience in different ways, and I kind of feel like it's a club, you know. It's sort of like a little bit of a of a secret club, but it shouldn't be so secret. We should be, as I said, talking about these issues. So I congratulate and commend anybody who takes the time to care about their loved one. It reminds me of the story of the starfish. I think it's the story about the person who walks along the beach and is throwing the starfishes back into the water. And somebody says, well, why are you doing that? Look at how many starfish there are on the beach. You can't help all of them. And I think the person said, well, I can make a difference to this one starfish. And so to all those people taking care of their starfish, I commend you. And keep on keeping on. Be strong. Andrea McMillan, a lawyer and a mom who brings compassion and care to her clients and her family. Andrea, thanks so much for sharing your story. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, and thank you for everything you do. Oh, of course. Thanks. Okay, Andrea, (laughs) take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. The AgeWise podcast is produced and edited by me, Jana Panaritis, and you can listen to the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including, most recently, on Google Play Music. The AgeWise podcast is also distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. And don't forget to check out our website for more amazing caregiving stories from the field. Go to agewise.com, that's A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says, and find out how you can be a guest on the show. Remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.